and welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and who love history and archaeology and making stuff that is sometimes also historical. And we'd normally like to start the podcast by talking about what we have been making and or baking recently. So what have you been doing? So Christmas happened. Which means I did my annual making sticky toffee pudding complete with two separate toffee sauces. Amazing. And we finally got the mead actually fermenting because it's been so cold, genuinely, mm-hmm. that after like two weeks in the bucket it was only it was less than one percent alcohol oh wow but it's it's speeding up now in the in the past few days it's gone up to one and a half percent which doesn't sound like a big jump but it is oh maybe you should bring bring the meat inside in the it's in the kitchen (laughs) Build it a little fire. <laughs> it's just been that cold. The yeast was grumpy. Yeah. <laughs> the yeast wants to hibernate. But now it's enjoying the honey. So we've got that good. Got that going. I haven't done a lot of crafting. Like most of my creative energy at the moment has been um so myself and the other probably bad RPG ideas mod. Um we've been making a game. Like a, a TTRPG. Oh. So I think most of my creative energies have been going into that. Is it uh, historically related? It is set during kind of an early industrial revolution and also has a for humans based magic system. So I would say a little bit, yeah. Ah, <laughs> yes. Yeah, I remember that. Okay. Yes, this is the one that I showed you when you were excited that one of the objects you can buy is spinning a wheel. I was. Magic sounds cool. So we've been we've been working on that and doing playtests and things. Ah, sweet. I can't wait to try it out. Remind me after the recording, I will send you the latest version because I think you'll enjoy some of the things we've done since. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think you sent it to me a month, a couple of months ago, maybe. Um, yeah, so that would have yeah. been version one. We're on to like uh, three and a half. Okay. Wow. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Then yeah, I would like to see. What have you been up to? Um, in what has apparently become winter tradition for me, I got ill immediately as my winter break started. <laughs> um so i was i was really sick with some kind of flu the whole of christmas um which kind of sucked yeah that's not ideal um so i'm i'm getting better now um i'm gonna hopefully not cough through this whole podcast but i'll mute myself if that happens but my voice is back anyway so hooray you can all listen to me talk about history um <laughs> i mean that's that's what people are here for presumably yeah uh i made my traditional gingerbread before that happened um can't remember if i talked about that on the last episode or not. i don't think you did i didn't okay i made my traditional gingerbread um which comes from um 
the children's my first cookbook recipe that I've been using for about 20 years <laughs> and and it's great what can I say um I like my gingerbread quite thick and quite spicy so I put quite a bit of ginger and some cinnamon and nutmeg in and it's a lot more biscuity than sort of cakey so yeah so here's a controversial question oh do you make soft gingerbread or hard gingerbread I make I make medium hard gingerbread. Yeah, <laughs> that's fair. I think mine is quite like it's definitely quite heavily seasoned, mm -hmm. like the same as as yours. But it's I think it's that. quite soft. Okay. Yeah, so I, I like I like a soft gingerbread. <laughs> I like it to be kind of crunchy on the outside, but then a bit softer on the inside. Mm -hmm. But it's a very specific texture that I always aim for, but don't often hit. Because if you leave it in the <laughs> oven a minute too long, it has become entirely crunchy. Um, More like a... Um, got the place now. There's a place in the Lake District that's known for gingerbread. Ah. It's really, really crunchy. I got some on a geography trip when I was in sick form. So I should be able to remember where it was. But it's really, really good gingerbread. Oh, I think um, we did a local larder on gingerbread at one point. Rasmia. About... Ah, yes. Um, yeah, I think we talked a bit about um, various European gingerbread mm -hmm. varieties. It's probably back in the archives somewhere. Anyway, so I made gingerbread. <laughs> and not much else because I then spent the next week in various combinations of being horizontal and coughing. Um, that's yeah, it's pretty much. Oh, it. very Victorian of you. <laughs> I know, I know, um, but but not as picturesque, you know, as being a Victorian invalid would be. Mm -hmm. um, but now I'm feeling better. I'm starting to get some plans. So that's good. Um, I want to, in the coming year, in 2023, um, I want to give Woad Growing another go. Yes. And that is a perfect segue into the topic of this episode. Oh. Because I'm going to talk about Woad. I've heard of this substance. Smooth. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so woad is the name of the plant that produces blue dye. Um, or I should say it's the name of a plant that produces blue dye. Um, because indigo, which is also a plant, mm -hmm. um, is, uh, which also produces blue dye. And in fact, it's the same pigment. So actually um historically and to the extent of my knowledge now as well um there is only one natural source of blue and that is the indigo pigment which is found in both woad and indigo plants um, it's the same chemical yeah it's the same one but huh. indigo just has more of it whereas <laughs> woad doesn't have as much um which is why indigo eventually became more popular because it gives you a bluer blue, um, mm -hmm. and you don't need as much of it. Um, 
actually also the other source of this pigment is our old friend the mollusk uh, that we talked about in the Tyrian purple episode so you can get it from the sea snails as well under certain be used in the ancient world which i will mention in a little bit um <clears throat> but for obvious reasons of the sea snails being hunted to extinction and also uh, it being a lot easier to get from plants, <laughs> um, that wasn't used as often as the woad pigment. So woad is actually uh, from the mustard family. It is a brassica. Oh, brass, brass another brassica. It's another brassica. Um, <coughs> sorry. Um, it is another brassica. It's it's mustardy, but you probably shouldn't try and eat it because it won't be delicious. Uh, the last. I mean, thing... I'm not a big fan of mustard anyway, to be honest. Oh no! Oh, I love a mustard. I like putting mustard powder in things, but I mm -hmm. I don't really like like put some some colmans on something. Ah, that's great. I like I like spicy spicy bread. Um. Uh, yeah, so Isatis tinctoria is the Latin name, mm -hmm. and it contains the indigotin pigment. Um, and it has a long history of use as a blue dye. So as I said, there are not that many sources of blue dye, and for thousands of years, uh, woad was the only source of blue dye in Europe, um, apart from the mollusk. Until um, indigo began to be imported more easily um, after the discovery of a, a sea route from Europe, between Europe and India. Um, so before this, it was, it was very, very expensive because it had to come Overland, um, and so the reason indigo eventually replaced woad is because it's got more of that pigment. Um, it's like a, a better blue, a deeper blue, um, and eventually it became more affordable as well. Um, but um, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do sort of a double episode on woad and indigo even though they contain the same pigment, um, because, um, yeah, so it's a, a funky little brassica, and woad is a biannual plant, so that means in the first year, it is like a small rosette um, with leaves, and then in the second year, it flowers and seeds. And woad is actually really good at growing. Um, so it can grow in pretty much any place, really. Um, and in fact, in some places, it's classified as a noxious weed. So if you're inspired to go out and plant some woad after this, um, you might want to be careful and just check whether or not 
it's under that classification where you so are. What, what does that classification mean? Just um, that you shouldn't plant it? Or... <laughs> okay, so I'm not entirely sure, but I think it's to do with um, like this. This is like a weed that takes over everything. And if you see it, you should get rid of it. Um, okay, so kind of kind of like invasive, but it's also yeah. native. Yeah, it's, it's considered an invasive species in a lot of places. But that does mean that if you are in one of these areas and you want to use woad, um, if you find any growing wild, you are absolutely justified in picking as much of it as you want because it's considered an invasive species. Nice. Yeah. It's so it's just pest control. <laughs> there's a silver lining, yeah. Um Yeah, so how do you get from the plant to a dye? Um So the traditional method is by fermenting it with ammonia. And where would they historically get the ammonia? Is it urine? It's urine. Yay! <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Shows up a lot in natural dyeing, I've noticed. It does, it does. Um, also, partly why a lot of these dye workshops would be on the outskirts of town. Yeah, I remember reading, I think it was the Elizabethan era, was dyers as well as tanners had to be outside of the walls of some cities because they were just considered... This anti-social industry. Yes. Um, in fact, uh, Elizabeth I would not let woad production within eight miles. <laughs> eight miles. I guess if the wind really, really tries, it might get some of the smell towards you. <laughs> but presumably. Not too much. Eight miles. I mean, why I guess eight? Eight seems like a, a strange number to choose. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Presumably, that's far enough away <laughs> that you can't see or smell it. You can just pretend it doesn't exist. Yeah, you could just pretend that your clothes are magically blue, um, <laughs> and you don't have to handle the fermenting pea smell. <laughs> yes. Um, so. The traditional method of processing woad is by taking the leaves of the plant um, and the fresh leaves don't last very long, so you have to process them right away. That means you can either make dye from the fresh leaves right there and then, or if you want to save it for later, um, what you do is you crush the leaves, you just kind of pulverise them right up and you would form them into balls and then leave the woad balls to dry. Um, and that, for hundreds of years, was the main way of doing it. Um, and then once you have... Little dye bombs. Yeah. And then those can be little, yeah, little woad bombs. <laughs> and then those can be traded or transported. And once you want to um, make your dye, um, you would like crush them up and put, add some water, ferment that for a little bit, uh, add some urine, and and then you can do your dyeing. Um, so the urine, um, so 
what happens apparently during this process is that um, when it's in the ball and it's drying, um, the pigment um, changes. So the chemical inside changes um, into that blue pigment. Um, and then the ammonia kind of like extracts it. Um, so what will happen when you're dyeing your cloth with indigo is that once you have your dye vat that's that's like fermented a little bit and it's ready it will not look blue it will look just kind of slightly greenish at the most to go wipe into it it will stay kind of looking clear and then um once the pigment has bonded with the cloth that is when you take it out and it turns blue once it has contact with oxygen in the air which is like the most magical thing to watch mm -hmm. um and that's why you have to be really careful not to get any oxygen into the dye vat because you don't want to oxidize um the the pigment before it's bonded onto the cloth makes sense um so if anyone is interested uh my my dyeing book wild color provides uh instructions for dyeing with woad and you can it it does tell you if you want to how to make a urine vat um it also tells you list. yes uh but if you're a purist and you want to do it the traditional way um you have to leave the urine to mature for at least 2 weeks mature is an interesting word to choose uh -huh. there yeah it's certainly a process <laughs> um <laughs> and and then you harvest the fresh woad um <laughs> and you make a, a dye liquid using that um and you add it to the stale urine and heat it to 50 degrees centigrade <laughs> It's gonna be a fun smell. Yeah, I'm starting. I'm starting to understand the eight miles. Uh huh. Uh huh. I didn't realize you left the urine for that long. <laughs> yes. Um. Yeah, that's why you don't want to hang around the tanneries or the woad dyeing workshop. Hmm. <laughs> So while, as I will explain, you could make a lot of money out of this trade, um, you might not also be that popular. <laughs> and actually, the people who are making the most money out of it were the merchants who were selling the woad balls anyway. So, naturally. Naturally. <laughs> so there we go. That is uh, kind of the process of how you're doing it. Um, so... There's a lot of recorded use of woad in history. It is probably one of the most ancient plants used for dyeing. 
and it's very associated with um the celtic tribes but woad is actually native to the mediterranean interestingly um it's just that um over my through migration in the ancient world it spread north across europe and eventually to the british isles and because woad is pretty good at growing anywhere it can adapt um so it is uh, recorded as being used as a dye in ancient Egypt. Um, however, because it's quite difficult to tell with analysis what the source of the dye is, whether it's the indigo plant, the woad plant, or the snail. Um, Makes sense, because it's the same chemical. Yeah, you, so we can't always tell exactly where it came from, but we know this pigment was being used, and because they had access to woad, it's likely that woad was being used. Um, Wode, uh, wode dyed cloth was also found in the Hallstatt uh, burials in the Neolithic period. Where, where is that? That's in modern day Austria. Okay. Um, yeah, so in the caves above the town of Hallstatt, um, where there are some quite important early textile finds. Um, so that's part of the early Celtic culture in Europe. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, and then also um, one of the earliest finds is a bast fibre. Um, so that's from a plant like linen um, that has been found in uh, the... Was that the bast fibre or was that a seed? Yeah, I think it was. Um, that was found in the cave of Lodust in France. Um, so a Neolithic um, cave site in France. We also have the impressions of woad seeds on pottery during the Neolithic period. Um, and, and through into the Iron Age. Um, so we know that it was used across France and Germany and into the British Isles as well. Um, That's woad seed. Does it have like a specific shape to it? Yeah, it does. Um, I will send you a picture of the seed. Could could you describe it as this is an audio medium? I will also do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like a teardrop shape, I guess. It is quite a distinctive seed. Mm. You can see that. It looks like little tadpoles. Yeah. And so we know people are using uh, or were storing these seeds because we have the uh, impressions of them on the inside of the pottery that was used to store them, which is cool. Um, so famously, I think a lot of people know Woad from descriptions of Celtic tribes and specifically the Picts painting themselves with woe to go into battle. Um, that's actually a little bit controversial because while the word, the, the name Picts or Picti means painted ones in Latin, 
we don't <clears throat> because you can make body paints out of lots of different things including like earth ochres um mm -hmm. and there are suggestions that they might be in tattoos as well um but the latin word that's actually used to that mean woad first of all is applied to the british and not the picts or the scots um and secondly the word is vitrum or i i guess in like latin pronunciation that's vitrum um which means woad but also is used more often to talk about glass like a specific kind of glass so yeah in vitro don't you which is like in glass mm -hmm. yeah so it's kind of unclear if they mean like oh they painted themselves the color like this glass that we use or mm -hmm. not or exactly how the yeah it was it was being used we're not sure um although woad was also used to create paint pigments so it could have been a paint derived from woad um, it could have been a paint made from something else. Um, if people were tattooing themselves, it probably wasn't woad because some experimental archaeology has been done on this. Um, and woad, it turns out, is really astringent. Oh, dear. Uh, so, <laughs> so, yeah, somebody actually did <laughs> a tattoo using this. Um, and on like a I, living person? Yeah, um, and I quote, it literally burned itself to the surface. Fun! Um, however, that did lead to a theory that it was being used in wound healing. Um, because apparently this healed really quickly and, and didn't leave any pigment. So there you go, who knows? I mean, I um, guess there is also the thing, like, in not leaving any pigment, yeah, but I'm, I'm just thinking, like, how many body modification things are quite painful like scarification mm -hmm. exists yeah that's true that's so true. just the pain thing i think wouldn't be enough to definitively convince me that they hadn't mm -hmm. done it but if it didn't leave any pigment then that seems a little pointless <laughs> yeah um the the sort of prevailing theory is that they might have used copper to create blue tattoos that um, makes sense yeah because there's a kind of copper that's blue yeah, so, and then woad being more of a, a dye plant mm -hmm. um, at the time. And interesting, apparently, um, the famous, on a tangent, um, apparently uh, Lindo Man, who, who's a, a famous bog ah, body. Local um, to me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, apparently there's evidence of copper tattoos on Lindo Man. Um, so there you go. Um, yeah, so it may or may not have been used as a body paint, um, but we know it was extensively used as a dye. Um, and in the medieval period uh, in Europe, it generated a lot of money. Um, oh, there's also um, woad seeds have been found in the Osberg ship. Um, so that is a 9th century ship burial in Norway. Is it Norway? Norway? I think it's Norway. My notes are very disorganised. Um, <laughs> but yes, it is, is an amazing, Norway. amazing ship burial. 
um, and a bag of woad seeds was discovered. Um, along with one of the bodies in this burial was wearing a a woolen dress dyed with woad. Um, and then also um, in our old friend Viking York, uh, the city of Jorvik, mm-hmm. there is a building uh, that was excavated that is thought to be a dye workshop that has um, remains of woad plants and, and madder plants as well. Oh, fun. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, so by this point, it was being used pretty extensively across Europe. Um, and given that it grows well everywhere, it can be used everywhere. Um, however, you get the the bluest blue out of woad um, when it's had more sun. So the plant will not develop as much um, blue pigment in the leaves if it hasn't had as much um, access to sun. So the more expensive blues would come from the southern regions of Europe where it's much sunnier and for longer in the year. So some of the places that became um, very central to the woad trade, for example, um, most famously was Toulouse in France, which has many fancy mansions that were built on the proceeds of the woad trade um, and production in the area. The city of Erfurt in Germany um, got so rich from the from the woad trade that the woad merchants donated money to build a university. That's um, cool. That is pretty cool, yeah. Um, and this is another tangent, but I thought it was too fun not to include. Um, the University of Erfurt was founded in 1379, mm-hmm. um, closed in 1816, and then reopened in 1994. So it has claims to be both the oldest and youngest university in Germany. Spectacular. <laughs> Amazing, I know. <laughs> and it was all founded on woad. So there you go. Um yeah, so at this point, um, in Britain, a lot of woad was being imported, or woad dyed cloth was being imported from the continent. Um, but the woad trade in Britain did take off a bit more during the 16th century, as it was more difficult and expensive to get supplies from abroad during this time. Um, and that led to some regulation of woad production in Britain. Um, so as we talked about earlier, Queen Elizabeth I uh, banning woad production within eight miles of any of her properties. Um, but she also regulated the growing of road of woad um, because it was such a cash crop that it was being prioritized over uh, growing food. So how that would become an issue. Yeah, and it, it in fact did become an issue. Um, so it was around a period of um, famine and crop failure that this proclamation was issued. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently Coventry was um, a major centre of the woad 
dying in Britain as well. Although they were dying with imported woad, apparently. Because Coventry blue is a thing, isn't it? Coventry blue, yeah. That comes from the medieval periods. Uh, during the 16th century, indigo started to become more available. Um, and that started the process of indigo gradually superseding woad um, for uses of blue dye in Europe. But it didn't quite go away everywhere because it was still being used as an assist. Um, so to help certain things, certain dyes fix. Um, and then also, if it is a plant that grows so well wild, people are still going to use it um, if they want blue for their own use because it's cheaper. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and actually... Blue, although we think of it as a very expensive colour, and certainly dark blue was a very expensive colour, um, which is in medieval paintings is often why the Virgin Mary is shown wearing dark blue. Um, but it was also fairly common to see light blue on, um, on people in the lower classes because um, when, when these, you know, big dye vats were being made, um, to dye blue cloth um the first the first batch would be the most expensive because that's what has got the most blue pigment in it um but then obviously they're going to keep going until they've used all of the blue pigment that they've got because mm -hmm. that's expensive stuff um so by the time you get to the last batches there were well, they were very light blue colors and those were those were a lot cheaper, um, and as well, that's more what people would be able to produce, um, kind of in home production as well. Um, so it would be quite common, apparently, to see light blue um, used in like peasant clothing, um, as well. I kind of think of it like, um, you know, like designer outlets where the kind of the seconds are being sold off cheap like kind of a similar you could go and get some kind of knockdown light blue from from the yeah and... see my my initial thought was olive oil uh-huh because you have like the first pressing the extra virgin and then uh... it gets worse as you keep going <laughs> yeah So as indigo became more popular, food began to be forgotten, um, especially as you could import indigo in powdered form. Um, and there's there's one more interesting story I have about woad, uh, which is that in the Napoleonic Wars, um there was a naval blockade of French ports by the British forces, which meant they were unable to continue importing indigo. And this was a big deal because the French army wore blue uniforms, mm -hmm. uh, which were dyed with indigo. And so they were about to run out of blue uniforms and they were going to have to change the colour of their uniform, which was, you know, 
unthinkable. <laughs> um, I mean, expensive and confusing. Exactly. Until um, somebody remembered, oh, we used to use Woad for this, didn't we? Maybe we could try that again. Um, but by this point, the knowledge of traditional word processing using the word balls had largely been forgotten. And so there was a prize for anyone who could extract, uh, who could come up with a method of extracting the blue pigment from woad. And um, they, they managed to do it. So a method was discovered that resulted in um, like a powdered blue dye from the woad plant. Um, and they managed to continue dyeing their uniforms blue. This why it's called powder blue? Uh, I don't know. Maybe so. I'm going to have to look that up when we're finished recording. Um, yeah, let me know. So apparently... Um, this is the same method that is used if you buy powdered indigo, a powdered um, woad indigo today. Um, so there you go. And that's that's pretty much the history of woad, um, because uh, well, now that there is synthetic indigo, um, real indigo is no longer used as much um but there is a bit of a resurgence of woad um in some areas so for example there is now a company called well in the meantime i've discovered that powder blue is unrelated to woad it's something called smalt which is cobalt glass if you can't find it we can just skip that bit no it's cool i found it again i found the website <laughs> <laughs> okay so there's a company in france called bleu de lectoire i don't know if i pronounced that right um but um that's in i believe the ostan region um around toulouse um, where they have begun to cultivate woad again and to create um, like products. Uh, so, for example, they use it for dyeing um, as well as for paints um, and also cosmetics, interestingly. Um, and then there's also a couple of initiatives in the UK, I think, which are um, which are cultivating woad. So it's making a bit of a, an interest comeback. And I'm attempting to try and plant some this year. I did try a, a couple of years ago, but I planted it in an area that Also had absolutely everything. So 
I might try I might try putting it in a slightly more contained area. Um, mm-hmm. But apparently woad even improves the soil that it grows in after a few generations. So it, okay. could be, it could be a handy plant to have around. Thank you, woad. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that is, that is my brief episodes in the life of woad. For our local larder, I thought I would talk very briefly about chicken tikka masala. Mm. Um, because, yeah, the guy widely credited with inventing it has just died. Ah, uh, yeah, I think I heard about that. Um, so who is the guy? So. Ali Ahmed Aslam is or was a um, Punjabi chef working in Glasgow. Mm-hmm. So he moved to Glasgow as a child. His father opened the Green Gate in 1959, which is considered to be the first Indian restaurant in Glasgow. Okay. Which is very cool. Um. And in 1964, Ali opened his own restaurant, Shish Mahal, in Glasgow. And the story goes that in in the 70s, I couldn't find an exact date, a customer ordered uh, chicken tikka, which is a roasted skewered chicken dish mm-hmm. um kind of similar to tandoori chicken in terms of flavor and complained that it was dry and he wanted a sauce for it and he said in an interview we thought we'd better cook the chicken with some sauce so from here we cooked chicken tikka with the sauce that contains yogurt cream spices it's a dish prepared according to a customer's taste. Usually they don't take hot curry, which is why we cook it with yogurt and cream. And that became known as chicken tikka masala. Um, some versions of the story say that it was improvised with a tin of tomato soup and some cream and spices. Uh, masala being a word used throughout India that basically just means a spice mix. So it shows up in multiple languages used in India, like Hindi, Urdu, um, coming from And yeah, it it took off just ridiculous popularity. Um, There was an unsuccessful campaign to get it um, protected designation of origin, which Ali actually spearheaded. Right. Um, it's British people's second favourite foreign dish after stir-fry. Okay. And in 2001, it was, it was described by the then Foreign Secretary as a true British national dish, um, because it is a perfect illustration of the way Britain absorbs and adapts external influences. Chicken tikka is an Indian dish, 
The masala sauce was added to satisfy the desire of British people to have their meat served in gravy. Wow. <laughs> just... so I love that. that chicken tikka masala is actually Scottish. It is firmly Glaswegian. Amazing. <laughs> For some reason, I thought it was older than the 50s as well. Well, it's it's the 70s. It's Oh, right. Oh, wow. No, it wait, is I... younger than both of my parents. <laughs> For some reason, I had it in my brain as like, uh, the nation's favourite dish it has Victorian origins or something. But, wow. Well, <laughs> it's like that, that caught it's on real Britain's favourite curry and second favourite foreign dish to make. Okay. I don't know what Britain's actual favourite dish is. Maybe we will have to look it up for a future local ladder. I'm sure it's on the list, though. So, yeah, thank you, Ali Ahmed Aslam, for creating... I mean, it is my favourite curry, because I am a spice coward, frankly. <laughs> I like a lot of pepper. I don't like a lot of spice in, like, a curry or chilli-type spice. Mm-hmm. But I do enjoy a chicken, a chicken tikka masala. A good time in the mouth. I mean, it's Britain's favourite curry. <laughs> Apparently a lot of people like it. Oh, I want one now. <laughs> you can have a New Year curry. Yes. <laughs> so, if you want to suggest a local larder or an episode... You can email breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at breadandthread, where you can find, for the moment, um, pictures of things um, that we talk about on the podcast, um, as well as teasers for upcoming episodes and related podcast news. Uh, you can find those same things on Tumblr at Bread and Thread. So thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>